So, I'm a little under the weather today. I got a shot, a steroid shot on Friday. I'm on antibiotics. And my voice is a little deep. I've always wanted to, to preach and sound like Barry White. Today's my day. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I can't believe I did that either. Uh, we're going to continue today in the book of Esther where we've been uh, just one week now. Um, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalms, you turn back a couple of, couple of books there, you'll run into the book of, of uh, Esther. And we're going to look and see, what did we see last week? We saw that, uh, that we got this, I mean, we didn't, even, we didn't even learn who Esther was last week, did we? we? We just looked at King Xerxes and how he was pretty much a doofus, right? I mean, he was the Persian king at that point in time, about 470 years before Christ. And, and uh, he uh, is a very powerful guy. The Israelites have been exiled um, in, into Babylon. The Persian king is now taken over and and now Persia's in, in charge of the Israelites. Um, and here we see King Xerxes. Um, he's going to do some pretty dumb stuff, okay? And the first thing he does is he's on the verge of declaring war against, the, uh, against Greece. And, and uh, all of his guys are all getting ready for war. And he has this big party. He throws this big party for everybody to get everybody fired up for war and all this kind of stuff. And during the middle of his, his party, he gets, he gets drunk. He, we talked about getting drunk last week. I'm not going to cover that again. I'm not going to go over all the things that you guys are like. I can't believe he said all that from the pulpit. But anyway, so he got drunk. He says, all right, let's get the queen who's having her own party on the other side of town. Let's get her to come down wearing her crown. And uh, we said that some commentators, some people say that when he said that, the implication was that she was supposed to come wearing only her crown. Okay, so yeah, I know, right? Like, you're like, is this all this in the Bible? Yes, it's there. I promise you, there's some crazy stuff. And we may actually skip some of those verses today um, where <laughs> you're like, is that really in there? Yes, it is. But anyway, so in, in Esther chapter one, we see the King Xerxes is calling Queen Vashti to, to come and, and be paraded in, around in front of his men. And she says, no, I'm not doing that. You crazy man, I'm not doing that. And what happens? She gets kicked out as queen. The, the, he gets his, his biggest, brightest guys in town and all of his, his, his guys that help him make decisions and they're well-versed in the law. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? And he's like, well, you got to get rid of her. You got to get rid of the queen. She's not supposed to be here. You know, this is going to be important for all the men in your kingdom that they see that you have rule and you have control and they'll have rule and control in their house if you do this thing. So, so basically he says, Queen Vashti, you're out of here. You're gone. And, uh, and his boys and him go into battle. Now, if you want to know about this battle where the, where the Persians attack the Greeks, you can go and watch the movie 300, you know. Uh, I'm not going to cover that in here, but there was a million to two million men who were actually going up against Greece. And, and like, this is, this is a big, big war. And, and King Xerxes, he gets his rear end handed to him, okay? That's basically what happens. He goes in with a million to two hundred a million to two million men. He comes back with 5,000. That's how bad he got whooped, right? So that's not a good day of battle, you know. If you go in with two million guys, you come back with 5,000, you've had a bad day, right? So he's kind of defeated. Not only has his queen, uh, she's gone now, and he doesn't have a queen. Not only that, but he got whooped in battle, and now he's got to come back and with his tail tucked between his legs to his homeland, and, and, and like it's not going good for old King Xerxes right now. Right? So, 
as we look at this story, I want you to see something. The whole purpose of going through this story is the very same thing that we did when we did in the book. Of, we were talking about Joseph. We were talking about the whole story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. We were talking about this zooming in on Joseph's life. And we, we, what we wanted to see was we wanted to see how God was at work, how he was doing stuff. Even when we can't see God necessarily, you got to know that he's at work. You got to know that he's, he's preparing things. And so many times, we talked about this last week, so many times it's easier to see it in hindsight. We look at the place that we're in. We look at the, the time that we came to uh, understanding of who Christ is and the sacrifice that he made for us and all those things. And there's just one message that just grabs a hold of you and grips your heart. And all of a sudden, you surrender your heart and life to Christ. And he rules and reigns in your life. And, and like, but there were things that led up to that. There was somebody that said something. There was somebody that, that, that brought you to church. Or there was somebody that talked to you about Jesus. There was some reason why these little bitty things added up to you one day surrendering your heart and life to Christ. And when you look back at the things that led up to that, you go, oh, I see that God was at work the whole time. And the reason we read these stories, the reason we go through these stories is so that you'll see throughout the Old Testament that there's so many places, that there's so many indications of God at work, that God's plans, he's working it out. That's this huge jigsaw puzzle and God's fitting all the pieces together. Now, what's the problem with a jigsaw puzzle? What's the problem with a jigsaw puzzle? If you've got one piece of the jigsaw puzzle, can you see the picture? No, you can't. You just see a little, man, that looks like a tree or a little flower or something. I don't know where that fits. I'm not a big fan of jigsaw puzzles. Some people are. They like jigsaw puzzles, like 15,000 pieces and stuff. And I'm like, man, I pull my eyeballs out. I couldn't handle doing a jigsaw puzzle like that. But some people are all about them, right? And, and, but if you've only got one piece, you only see one piece of the puzzle. But, you know, as God puts the pieces of the puzzle together and we step back from our life and we look, we see the big picture, we go, aha, I see what God was doing. I see that God was at work. And, and, and this one small thing that may have happened in my life or this one thing that, that occurred, it, it just kind of was just one piece of the puzzle. That there's a bigger picture going on here. And that's the reason we study the Old Testament. And so we can see the bigger picture. We can look back. We can look back before Jesus and see what all led up to Jesus coming and dying for all of us. It's important that we study the Old Testament. And here we're going to see how this dumb King Xerxes, how he's a part of the puzzle. Even though we like sometimes don't really acknowledge the fact that God can use wicked people, he certainly can. Now, they don't understand that that's what God's doing. They, they don't really get it, the fact that God is actually using them. But as a matter of fact, because he's in control of everything, because the sun shines on the just and the unjust, that, that God is at work in every single person's life, and he's orchestrating things, and he's doing things. He's all lining it up for his will and his purpose, and we need to see that, y'all. That's why we study this, and that's why we see King Xerxes here, him kicking the queen out of the kingdom, and how God is going to use all of this for his purposes. It's kind of crazy. Wicked King Xerxes and, and Queen Vashti getting kicked out, it's all going to be used for God's purposes. So here we see, she's been kicked out. Chapter 2, verse 1, it begins like this. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began to think about Vashti and what she had done and the decree that he had made. So he's come back from battle. He's lost all these men. He went from 2 million down to 5,000. And he's sad, right? Like, like he's, he's upset. It's a bad day. That's going to happen. So let's look at what goes on here. He says, so his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find, a beautiful, find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these young, beautiful young women into the royal harem 
at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch, in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Ashtai. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Now, I know that it's hard for everybody to believe that this plan would have been very appealing to the king, right? This prideful, egotistical guy, he's got a harem full of women, and they say, you know what? I know you're sad, king. I know what we'll do to be able to quench your sadness. What we'll do is we'll find all the prettiest virgins in the whole land, and we'll bring them, and, and we'll have them uh, to, 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 to fight. I mean, this is like the biggest like, like bachelorette or bachelor you could ever imagine, right? So this, yeah, I don't watch the bachelor or the bachelorette. I don't watch the shows, but I know that a lot of people do. And, and I mean, this is like the bachelor to the nth degree, right? So all these women, they go and they pick them out and they bring them and they're like, okay, you have your pick. Who you think is the most beautiful? She's going to be the next queen. So let me ask you this question. How long is that going to last for him? How long is he going to be truly, genuinely happy? Probably not very long, right? It's only going to be a short time thing, and it's only going to make him fulfilled for a short period of time. Why is that? Why is that? Because he's not worshiping the one true God. He has no interest in God. One thing I want you to know about the book of Esther is this, is that the, the name Yahweh is not mentioned in the book of Esther at all. That God's really not mentioned in the book of Esther at all. But the thing about it is, is that when you look at what's going on here, you can see God at work. You can see God at work. And here we see that the, the, the King uh, Xerxes, he, he's, he's sad, he's been defeated. Now they're trying to bring all these women in there to make him happy. It's not going to make him happy long term because he's not worshiping God. He's worshiping himself. And when you worship yourself and you don't worship God, you're never going to be satisfied. You're always going to have an emptiness. You're always going to be looking for something else to fill that void. That's the reality. And yes, marriage is a wonderful thing. And you have a partner in life is an amazing thing. Don't, don't get me wrong about that. But what I'm saying is this, is that person cannot bring you full joy, full satisfaction the way that God can. There is nothing that can fill that void. There is nothing that can give you that completeness like the joy of knowing the one true God can give you. So if you are looking for a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend to be able to fill that void in your life, you are missing the boat. You will not find that in a person. You will not find that supernatural kind of need and desire that you have in your life. You will not find that in a physical person. I want you to know that today. I think that's an important thing for us to point out here as the king is searching high and low for something to give him satisfaction, to make him fulfilled, that he will never actually find that. I don't care how many women they bring in front of him. He's never actually going to have that. That's the problem with not worshiping God. That's the problem with not having God as, as part of your life. What's interesting to me is, is um, I, I talk to our college kids a lot and I used to be in charge of a college ministry. And what's so interesting is that, that uh, during high school and junior high, kids are really connected to their church. They're really involved in church, and they want to be there because they like going to the beach, and they like doing fun stuff, right? So they're really connected to the church, and, and mom and dad bring them up until they're about 16, and then they have to figure out if they're going to go to church or not on their own, and mom and dad are kind of pressuring them, right? So when they get out of high school a lot of times, and they go off to college, then they get out of church. And this is what I always told our college kids, and this is very important. 
You think about the decisions that you're going to make in your life while you're in college, about your career. And many people will find who it is that they're going to marry. They're going to be making some of these huge life choices around the time that they're in college, right? And that's when most of them disappear from church. That's when you, you don't see them in church. You don't see them involved in any kind of church group or seeking God through a Bible study. You don't see that. That's the time when they run away. So we wonder then sometimes why it is that, that, that families are so broken, that so many, so many families are split apart. Well, the times when people are, are supposed to be seeking God and discerning what God is saying about who they're supposed to marry, what their future is supposed to be like, that's the time when they're most distant from God. And we wonder, why is that happening? You know, it would be interesting to see, you know, if, if we, we, we were to, to really reach out to those college kids, those, those kids in that, that age group, you know, where, where they tend to, to slip away, the 18 plus group, if we were to, to really grab them and hold on to them and do everything we could to pour the truth of God into them, it'd be interesting to see how we could change this world by having some kids in that age group where they're becoming adults to be able to understand what God really wants for their life. I really believe that would be revolutionary to this country and to this world to grab kids at that age, man, and say, look, man, God wants to, 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 to bless you. He wants you to understand what his will for your life is. If you will latch on to him and you will understand and you will listen to him and to him alone, you will have that fulfillment later on in life that you are so searching for right now. It's an important, important, pivotal time in people's lives for them to be connected to God at that point in their life. So the king, in, in, in verse 5, he, he's made this plan. He's like, that's a good plan, guys. I like your plan. Let's go to verse 5. It says, at the time, a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, was from the tribe of Benjamin and descendant of Kish, of Shimei. His family had been among those who King uh, Jehoiakim of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem Babel, uh, to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man was a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, had a very beautiful and young, young, wow, I'm sorry. See, what happened was, is I got so focused on those names and pronouncing them right, I can't even talk. I'm dried out, y'all, give me a second. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Adessa, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her, her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Now, you, you say, well, that's very boring. I don't know if I really want to get into that very much, Kenny. That's really boring. What, what's the big deal about that? Well, let me, let me tell you something. That, that Many times when it comes to the lineage, you know, uh, we, we talk about the generations and, and what's happened, and we look back at the past, we kind of skip over those verses. And to a Jewish person, to an Israelite, this would have meant a lot. Okay, first of all, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, okay? And, and if you look at the fact that, that Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His, his family had been uh, among those who King Jehoiachin of Judah had been had been exiled from Jerusalem into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So the, the reason that this is important, I want you to understand this, is that, is that when you look at, at, at who this guy was, who Mordecai was, he was a descendant of Shimei. Now, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 16 and you look back in there, you will find that, that David 
uh, had one of his guys that wanted to kill Shimei because he had cursed David. And David said, no, we're not going to do that. King David said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to kill this guy. He's, he's going to live on, and, and, and don't worry about him. You let God handle this. You let God handle this situation, and don't you worry about it. Now, I want you to see something. That God was at work, even way back then, with King David, because Shimei went on, and, and Mordecai ended up being a descendant of Shimei, and God is now able to use Mordecai to raise this young lady named Esther. Now, we've talked about last week, and I gave you the end of the story, kind of. I gave you a prelude. What's going to happen is that God's going to use Esther to redeem his people. He's going to use Esther to save the people of Israel. So what I want you to understand is way back in there with King David making that one decision, focused on God. God, what would you have me to do? Now it's this whole chain of events that led up to the fact that now Mordecai is raising Esther, who is going to save God's people. That God was at work Hundreds of years before Esther ever came into this world, that God was at work setting these things up, and David was obedient to God, and therefore, because he was listening to God, doing the things that God had had called him to do, then Esther's able to come on the scene. And now Mordecai's raising Esther. And Esther, by the way, the name Esther means something hidden. Something hidden. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we see in this book? Something what is the something hidden? The something hidden is God. His name's not mentioned in this thing, but, but God is there and he's present. Even though we can't necessarily see it, we have to look deeply and we have to dig richly into God's word and see God at work. So he raises Esther. Hadessa is her name, but she's also called Esther. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and, and, and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned seven maids specially chosen for the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now what I want you to see here is this. It's the same thing we saw when we talked about Joseph. It's the same thing we saw is that That here, she was taken. And it's important to say that she was taken here because it says that. She was taken into the the king's harem. So this this is a group of women that were supposed to be with the king. And so they have this own little palace where they hang out. And when it's their time, they go and be with the king. Now, that's just the way that it was. She was taken into this place. I don't believe that she was... She, she chose to go there, but she was taken into this place. Now, that's not to say that Esther is without sin. Because we're going to see in just a minute, she ain't without sin. So for us, when you're wondering if God can use you, if God can can still use you in spite of your past or the things that you've done, the answer to that is most definitely yes. That indeed God can use you, and that's what I want you to see today. That's really the essence of what I want you to get out of this message today, is that God can use you. Even when God, who is hidden, and we can't always see what he's up to, that God can indeed use you. And Esther was taken into the king's harem. And, it, and notice that she is faithful. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. She, she, she's, she's just being the, the, the kind of person that God has called her to be. She's being a good Israelite. And because of that, Haggai, who's, who's the chief eunuch of that day, he's the one that, that's, 
that's taken a liking to her. He sees what kind of potential she has. He sees what kind of woman she is. He sees that she's a woman of integrity. He sees that she's a woman that, 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 that most men would, would desire to have as a wife. And he sees that. So what does he do? He assigns seven maids to take care of her. Now seven, I don't want to get into numerology or anything like that, but seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the, the number that God uses to remind us that God is at work. So he takes seven maids and puts them in charge of taking care of Esther. It says that Haggai even gives her a special menu. Now, I, I, I don't know what the special menu consisted of, okay? I, I don't know what it was. It's either one of two things, though. It's either one of two things. I can only surmise it's either one of two things. Either it's a special menu because she's Jewish and she doesn't necessarily like to eat all the things that the, uh, uh, the other people like to eat. She has a special diet, a strict diet that she keeps because she's Jewish. Or it could be this. It could be that she's got a special diet so that she can keep her complexion, that she can keep her figure, that she can, she can be more beautiful than the others, that she's got a special menu, very different. So God is already using this Haggai, who's a, a eunuch that is in charge of all these women. He's already using that man in order to, to be able to do special things for Esther. Isn't it really cool how we see God doing all these little things? And in our lives, we think that we just we go through day by day and God's not at work and God's not doing anything and, and God has, has no idea who I am or, or God's not doing this or God's not doing that. And the reality is every single thing that happens around us, God is just constantly reminding us that he's doing something, that he's at work, that he's constantly reassuring us. If we will open our eyes and choose to see that it's God at work and stop thinking that it's just happenstance or if it's just chance and we recognize how sovereign God is and how in control he is and we'll see God at work in every single detail of our life we so easily forget that but God is at work at every single detail in our life now now look at what look at what has happened here Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so Mordecai's the guy's taking care of her right and here he says, he says, don't tell anybody. Every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So, so Mordecai is, is this loving fatherly figure that we see in Esther's life. And he's taking care of her. Now I believe Mordecai to be a man of God. And we'll see that later on in this story. We'll see how godly this man is, how full of integrity he is. But we see that, that right here he's taking care of Esther. God has put him in charge of this little girl. God has given him a little girl that he didn't originally plan on having. She's come into his life, and now he's taking care of her. Now, I believe just by that alone, this picture of adoption there, we've talked about it a million times, how the picture of adoption is a beautiful picture of what Christ does in our life and how he adopts us as children and brings us into his family. Even though that, that, that we, we do things to rebel against him, he still adopts us and brings us in and treats us like we're his own. And here, that's what Mordecai is doing. And I believe that when he, he tells her, he says, don't tell anybody about your nationality. Don't tell anybody that, that, that you're an Israelite. I believe that he's looking out for her and he's trying to do what's in her best interest. And I believe he's following the direction of God as God is showing him, all right, now it's not the right time. Now, you, you, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this thing, so you got to listen to me. And you got to listen to me closely. And, and, and Mordecai tells her, Esther, you can't tell anybody who you are. Now, I want you to understand something. Now, as... As Esther doesn't tell that she's an Israelite, that's going to mean that when she goes to these banquets and these parties, she's probably going to have to eat some of the stuff that she's not supposed to eat being an Israelite. 
which is going to be a sin. It's going to be a sin in their eyes that she's eating things she shouldn't be eating. And she's going to commit some other sins that we're going to see in just a minute. And we're going to skip over the verses here in just a second because the next verse says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed. We're going to skip that part. You say, are we skipping it because it's too much for us to handle? No. It's just, I'll summarize it for you and say this. That the way that this worked, the way that this huge bachelor contest worked is that each one of these women would be taken in front of the king after they had had a full year, a full year of preparation to get ready for this one night with the king. They had a full year to get ready. One of the reasons for this was the fact that anybody who had been working in the fields, they would be tan, their skin would be darker, right? So what they wanted to do was give them a full year for that tan to go away so they could be seen as more pure and more lovely and all this kind of stuff because in that day and in that time and in Persia, it was seen that if you were somebody that labored in the fields, you were not as attractive. Believe it or not, it was also seen that if you were a little overweight, you were more attractive. That's the way that it was seen because you were considered to be more wealthy if you had extra weight on you. And that, that's the way that it was seen there. And also that you didn't work in the fields because your skin was a little lighter. So all of this was in preparation for them to go and stay with the king. And we know that, that Esther, indeed, she did go and stay with the king. Now, I want you to understand that this is, this is not to say that sex outside of marriage is okay. That's not the point here. As a matter of fact, I would say that the, the opposite is probably true. And that is that, that she knew the law. She knew that it was not okay for her to go and stay with the king. She knew that that was not okay to do. And yes, she chose to do it anyway, and that was her choice. But that doesn't mean that God wasn't able to use her. Okay? I want you to understand if there's been sin in your life, things that you've done, things that you've wronged God because you went completely the other direction. When God said, this is my way, and you went the other way, that that doesn't exclude you from being used by God. Now, we know. We know that the divorce is not something that God endorses, okay? But there are many people in this place that have been divorced, Okay? And I, I am so sick and tired of divorced people being treated like second-class Christians. Like somehow that God can't use them, that somehow because of something they've done in the past, that God's incapable of restoring them and redeeming them, being able to use them in a capacity or in a way where the kingdom of God can be glorified. Let me tell you something. The, the past, God can use that not only to... to, to, to to redeem you, but he can also use that as your testimony to say, look at where I came from and look at where I am now. Now, God also gives us a brain too. So let me, let me say this. I want to clarify this point just a little bit. If you say, well, I just got paroled. I just got out of prison. And I'm like, well, what did you, what'd you go to prison for? You're like, well, I just got done uh, serving my time for selling child pornography. And you say, well, I want to go work in the children's department. I'm going to say, well, hang on just a minute. God has given you grace and God has given you mercy and God has also given both of us a brain and we know that that's not wise, right? So therefore, we got to be patient and we got to look for the things that God has called you to do and the ways that God has called you to serve. But God can certainly use you even though you've got sin in your past, you've got things that you've done in rebellion against God. 
That you're not a foregone conclusion. That you're not, not no longer useful to God. That you are still useful to God. And he who is without sin, let them cast the first stone. Amen. So here she goes and, and she stays with the king. And that's reality and that happens in chapter 2. And if you want to read about it, you certainly can. It's interesting to me that, that all the other women, see what they would do is if they were in the harem and they were to go and stay with the king, that they would they'd just be able to load up on all the treasures and the jewels and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they, they would carry in everything they possibly could because this was going to be kind of like, well, if you don't get to make it to be one of his wives, this is kind of like you're going away present. Thank you for a job well done kind of thing. And I'm just telling you, that's the way that it's written. That's, that's what's in there, okay? And they would go and they would go back and, and stay in the harem and, and they could never marry anybody else. They just had to stay there by themselves in isolation. Now, they, they live lavishly, don't get me wrong, but they, they, could, they, they couldn't get married to anybody else once they had, they had done this. It's either you got, you got sent to, to that house or you got sent to the other house where the actual wives resided. And that's where Esther gets sent. But when she gets a chance to go and load up on all the goods and stuff and be able to take whatever she wants to, she doesn't take everything. She just takes what Haggai tells her to take. He just, she just takes a few things and she's not overly adorned. She's just herself. And I believe that, that Haggai was trying to reinforce and say, just let yourself shine through. Just let who you are come out. And that's what the king will want. That's what the king will want. And that's exactly what we see in verse 16. We're going to skip down a little bit. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, we can see that it's in the fourth year of his reign that we actually saw uh, the first part of this happening. And now we're in the seventh year of his reign. It says, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. So he was delighted with her. That he, he was so delighted with her that he set a royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor. For all of his nobles and officials declaring a, a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. So he, he, he's happy again, right? King Xerxes is happy again because now he's got a queen again and he, 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 he sees it, that, uh, that Esther is the one that's going to be the queen. And he says, you know what? I, I think more favorably of you. I, I love you. I have compassion for you. And he makes her the queen all the while not knowing that she's an Israelite. Now this is going to be important. This is going to be an, an important step in how God is going to use this later on in the story. Even after... All the young women had been transferred to the second harem. And Mordecai had become a, a palace official. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's direction just as she did when she lived in his home. And this is kind of where we're going to wrap up here today. And I want you to understand a few things. King Xerxes is a wicked, evil, prideful man, okay? He's somebody that, that, that is just consumed with self. He's full of pride He's full of, of, of selfishness. And God is even going to use this evil king to be able to redeem the people of Israel. Esther is just this young Israelite girl that's been exiled into Babylon. And, and now she's in a foreign place. She's in a different place than, than what she's used to. She's not in her homeland. She's, she's somewhere else. She's been exiled. 
So she's in captivity for the most part. And what do you see? What do you see? God, God's still at work. He's still using the situation to be able to bring glory to him. And then what do we see? This young girl, she's, she's, just, she's just faithful in what she's, she's, the place that she's at. This, this is where she is, and, and she doesn't know what to do necessarily, but all she knows is, you know what, I'm still going to be the person that I'm supposed to be. I'm still going to be the person that I'm supposed to be. Does this mean that she's free from sin and she doesn't commit sin? No, she, she marries a king, a prideful king, as a matter of fact. She marries him. And this would have been a sin, too, for the Israelite people to marry somebody who wasn't Jewish would have been a sin for them as well. But you know what? You know what the picture is we see? She's still listening to Mordecai. She's still taking her directions from him. She's still connected to that fatherly figure in her life, the one that's been providing for her and taking care of her and loving her and nurturing her. She's still taking her direction from him. You know what I want to say to you today? If you've had sin in your life and you've done some things to break the heart of God, You've done some things in direct rebellion against God. And you think you're unusable. You think there's no way that God could use you. You're absolutely 100% dead wrong. That if you will listen closely to that fatherly figure in your life, which is your father who is in heaven, the one true God that can give you peace and fulfillment and joy like no human being on this earth ever can, he can still use you. You're not a foregone conclusion. Your, your service to God is not over with. You're, 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 not, you're not without usefulness to the kingdom of God. But what you have to do is you have to listen to Him and you have to listen to His voice and to His voice alone. So many times in our life, the enemy tries to convince us that we're no good, that we're no count, and there's no way that God can use us. Imagine. Imagine if all those people that felt like they were of no usefulness to God, if they said, you know what, I'm not going to listen to that voice. I'm going to listen to the voice of the one who has cared for me all along, and I'm going to say yes to that voice, and I'm going to allow God to use me. Let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of people who say, you know what, God, I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. Even in spite of all the things that I've done wrong, I know that you still want to use me. So where are you in your life? Have you been hurt? Have you done some things that, that you feel guilt and shame for and you just need to repent of them? You need to come to God and say, God, I still want to be used by you. I know you've got to do some work on me and I'm still a work in progress, but God, I need you to, to just do that work so that I can be used for your kingdom and for your glory. Or maybe you've got some things in your life right now where it looks like God's not present. He's nowhere to be found. That the trials are too difficult, the temptations, everything else around you, it's, it's a bad situation right now. And you just don't know what to do. And you say, God, are you anywhere to be found? Will you come down and fall on your face before him? And I promise you, he can be found. Will you allow him to open your eyes so that you can see even in the midst of the most devastating trials and situations in your life, he's still there and he's still doing a great work? Maybe there's evil people that have come against you and, and there's... There's a King Xerxes in your life. And you think, man, man, it's just, it's overwhelming. Can I tell you something? That even God can use that situation. God can even use that situation to bring him glory and use it for your good. If you'll open your eyes, if you'll allow God to just let you see 
the bigger picture. Stop looking at the small puzzle piece and see the bigger picture and allow God to let you see that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this precious word. Thank you for how you open our eyes and you use us, God, in spite of all the things that we've done wrong, in spite of all the things where we've broken your heart. God, you still use us. God, I thank you for being that kind of redeemer. I thank you for being that kind of father that shows us the loving grace, God, that we don't deserve, but God, that you give to us so freely. Lord, there are people right now, and in the sound of my voice, and they're hurting. God, maybe the situations in their life are overwhelming. God, maybe the things that they've done in their life, maybe they feel like they're of no usefulness to you. God, I pray that you would just open their eyes and let them see your love today. God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, God, that you would let them see your mercy fall on them. God, that they're not too far gone, that they can still be used by you. God, you are so incredibly good to us. You continue to to pour out on us and you continue to love us. God, I pray that we would listen to your voice and your voice alone. God, that you'd receive glory from our lives as we tune into you and we follow you. God, right now, just work. Your Holy Spirit, I pray that he would move in this place. And God, you would work in people's lives right now. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would everyone stand?